Hi, this is Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder. Mental illness. It's still taboo in America and abroad. I'd like to say that mental health understanding, acceptance, and treatment have been addressed in our society, but that would be a big fucking lie. For the longest time, those mentally ill were taken care of, well, handled, in some pretty atrocious ways. I found this great comprehensive article on Talkspace.com, actually, so I had to lift a bunch of the info. I, an avid pod listener, heard the Talkspace ad dozens of times before I signed up. I had a great experience and would highly recommend them. They're not a sponsor. Yet. So, mental health treatment today is no walk in the park. From insurance companies denying coverage, like the max is like seven days usually, to a lasting stigma, to the fact that many of the most severely mentally ill among us to are left to their own devices on the streets or in an unregulated uh, prison environment. It's an understatement to say that there is work left to be done. Yet, the inhumane history of mental health treatment reminds us how far we have already come. So silver lining time. Asylums. While terrifying mental health remedies can be traced back to prehistoric times, it's the dawn of the asylum era in the mid-1700s that marks a period of some of the most inhumane mental health treatments. This is when asylums themselves became notorious warehouses for the mentally ill. Quote, The purpose of the earliest mental institutions was neither treatment nor cure, but rather the enforced segregation of inmates from society, writes Jeffrey A. Lieberman in Shrinks, the Untold Story of Psychiatry. The mentally ill were considered social deviants or moral misfits, uh, excuse me, suffering divine punishment for some inexcusable transgression like my stumbling over words, not to minimize mental illness. I have like a half dozen. Journalist Nellie Bly captured the asylum atmosphere firsthand when she went undercover at the Blackwell Island Insane Asylum in New York in 1887. You're probably familiar with this. Not only was Bly committed without much of an examination to determine her sanity, but the conditions were harsh, cruel, and inhumane. For crying, the nurses beat me with a broom ham- handle and jumped on me, described one patient to Bly. Then they tied my hands and feet and, throwing a sheet over my head, twisted it tightly around my throat so I could not scream, and thus put me in a bathtub filled with cold water. They held me under until I gave up every hope and became senseless. Hydrotherapy proved to be a popular technique. Warm, or more commonly cold water, allegedly reduced agitation, particularly for those experiencing manic episodes. People were either submerged in a bath for hours at a time, mummified in a wrapped pack, or sprayed with a deluge of shockingly cold water in showers. Asylums also relied heavily on mechanical restraints, using straitjackets, manacles, waistcoats, and leather wristlets sometimes for hours or days at a time. Recently in a prison, a guy was restrained in a chair for like two fucking days and then they let him out like naked, like defecating and urinating all over himself. And then after two days, they let him out of this like shackled chair. And then when, you know, he threw a fucking blood clot and died. That was like two years ago, I think. Anyway, so... Hours of days at a time being shackled. Doctors claimed restraints kept patients safe, but as asylums filled up, the use of physical restraint was more a means of controlling overcrowded institutions. At the same time asylums were on the rise, so too was psychiatry, a fledging wing of the medical profession bent on proving their ability to treat as opposed to simply manage the ill. Asylum served as the perfect lab for psychiatric treatments. Some early psychiatric treatments. Benjamin Rush, considered the father of American psychiatry, was first to abandon the theory that demon possession caused insanity. This didn't stop him from using old humoral treatments on asylum patients to cure their minds. 
Instead of letting out demons as the treatment was originally intended, he thought the body's fluids were out of balance. As such, he purged, blistered, vomited, and bled his patients, writes Mary D. Young in Madness, An American History of Mental Illness and Its Treatment. Similarly, Henry Cotton, superintendent at New Jersey's Trenton State Hospital from 1907 to 1930, thought infected parts of the body led to mental illness. He focused on pulling rotting teeth, which he thought caused madness-inducing infections. When that didn't work, presumably because contaminated saliva still made its way into the body, cotton began removing tonsils as well. 99% sure um, Dave Anthony Gareth Reynolds of the dollop covered this, and it's insanity. Yep, okay. And then he took it a step further, removing parts of stomach, small intestines, appendixes, gallbladders, thyroid glands, and particularly parts of the colon, any place where it was thought infection could linger. Unsurprisingly, this did not prove to be a reliable cure, and it carried a high mortality rate. Yes, the dollop. Check it out. Inspired by the discovery that high fevers help stop the symptoms of advanced syphilis, Julius Wagner um, experimented with inducing fevers in people with schizophrenia by injecting them with malaria-infected blood. This popular method even earned Wagner the 1927 Nobel Prize in um, sociology or medicine, the first ever awarded for the field of psychiatry. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Goodness. Like Cotton's body, uh, part removal technique before it, malaria induced fevers had a high mortality rate. Who could have fucking thought? About 15% of patients treated um, with the fever cure died from the procedure. Oh, 15% doesn't seem like it's as much as I would have thought. Still fucking terrible, of course. Shock therapies. So by then, however, the professional community was ready to move on to the next fad. Insulin shock therapy brought to the United States by Manfred Sakel, a German neurologist. Insulin shock therapy injected high levels of insulin into patients to cause convulsions and a coma. Thinking of Homeland. Spoiler alert. After several hours, the living dead would be revived from the coma and thought cured of their madness. This process would be repeated daily for months at a time, oh my god, with doctors sometimes ad administering as many to 50 to 60 treatments per patient, according to Lieberman. How are you not just, like, microwaved? However, the procedure was obviously risky and caused amnesia. Nevertheless, the treatment proved popular based on a questionable success rate. By 1941, according to a U.S. public health survey, 72% of the country's 305 reporting public and private asylums were using insulin coma therapy, not only for schizophrenia, but also for other types of madness, writes DeYoung. Another shock therapy was yet to come. Metrazole shock therapy, like insulin, worked on the mistaken premise that epilepsy and schizophrenia couldn't exist at the same time. The key? Seizures. Lazizo von Menduna, a Hungarian physician, discovered that the drug metrazol, I hope I'm saying any of this, like, kind of right, uh, could produce seizure-like convulsions in patients, therefore shocking their brains out of mental illness. It proved to be a shock physically as well. Metrazol also provoked thrashing convulsions so violent that they could become quite literally backbreaking, writes Lieberman. Oh my god, shivers up my spine. In 1939, an x-ray study at the New York State Psychiatric Institute found that 43% of patients who underwent metrazol convulsive therapy experienced fractures in their vertebrae. 43%? Are you fucking kidding me? And it still went on? You get blown up and you go unconscious, like something boils up, describes one patient of treatment. I felt every time I took, it, it, I felt every time I took that 
as if I was going to die. Okay, so bad grammar, but felt like you're going to die. Felt like something that was boiling up. Literally feels like you're being microwaved, microwaved, it sounds like. Beyond its terrifying experience, the shock therapy also produced a retrograde amnesia. Luckily, the FDA revoked um, Metrozole's approval in 1982. Oh my god, 1982. And this method of treatment for schizophrenia and depression disappeared in the 1950s thanks to electroconvulsive um, shock therapy. Which brings us to electroconvulsive shock therapy, buzz box, shock factory, power cocktail, stun shot, the penicillin of psychiatry. One of the most infamous treatments for mental illness includes electroconvulsive shock therapy. Types of non-convulsive electric shock therapy can be traced back as early as the first century AD when, according to de Young. The malaise and headaches of the Roman emperor Claudius were treated by the application of a torpedo fish, better known as an electric ray, on his forehead. But their heyday in treating mental illness began in 1938. ECT carried less risk of fracture um, than uh, any of the drug uh, shock therapies. Um, and with the use of anesthetics and muscle relaxers in later years, the fracture rate became negligible. It wasn't without side effects, however, including amnesia as well as increased suicidal tendencies. Ernest Hemingway, for example, died by suicide shortly after an ECT treatment. ECT was a welcome replacement for metrozole therapy, writes Lieberman. Depressed patients in particular often showed dramatic improvements in mood just after just a few sessions, and while there were still some side effects to ECT, they were nothing compared to the daunting risks of coma therapy, malaria therapy, or lobotomies. It was truly a miracle treatment. Lobotomies, again, holler to the dollop. They have an amazing episode. It's bug fuck, as Dave would say. Around the same time, doctors overseas performed the first lobotomy. lobotomies. The practice was brought to the United States thanks to Walter Freeman, who began experimenting with lobotomies in the mid-1940s, which required damaging neural connections in the pre frontal cortex area of the brain thought to cause mental illness. Um, a Kennedy sister had a lobotomy. Um, that's uh, like not very well kept secret uh, because she was mentally ill. So they kind of just, or she was, she had something, some like deficiencies in her mental faculties. And so her family was like, cool, give her a lobotomy and make her just like drool and set her to the side. Allegedly. So, um, the behaviors doctors were trying to fix, they thought, were set down in neurological connections. Baron Lerner, a medical historian and professor at NYU, blah, 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 Medical Center in New York, um, told Live Science, the idea was if you could damage those connections, you could stop the bad behaviors, like shocking a dog to not go outside of a fence. The problem was lobotomies didn't just stop bad behaviors, probably because they removed chunks of brain. They damaged people's memories and personalities, which even Freeman admitted. Every patient probably loses something by this operation. Some spontaneity, some sparkle, some flavor of the personality. Definitely some fucking brain. Check out the lobotomy mobile. Yeah, lobotomy mobile. You heard that right? All right, back to this. According to DeYoung, despite the side effects, by the time Freeman died in 1972, approximately 50,000 lobotomies had been performed on U.S. patients, mostly in asylums. However, less than five, 350 lobotomies were performed per year in the 1970s. By then, medication-dominated mental health treatment. Psychiatric medications... Drugs had been used in treating the mentally ill as far back as the mid-1800s. Their purpose then was to sedate patients to keep overcrowded asylums more manageable, a kind of chemical restraint to replace the physical restraints of earlier years. Doctors administered drugs such as opium and morphine, both of which carried side effects and the risk to, of addiction. Wow, I'm glad we caught that and nipped it in the bud, as they say. 
Toxic mercury was used to control mania. Barbiturates put patients into a deep sleep thought to improve their madness. Chloral hydrate came to use in the 1950s, but like the drugs before it, it had side effects, including psychotic episodes. And then came Thorazine, the medical breakthrough psychiatrists had seemingly been searching for all these years. While it wasn't perfect, it proved much safer and effective at treating severe mental illness. Its use along with other drugs that quickly followed, such as uh, Risperdal, uh, Abilify, Zeprexa, Seroquel, etc., marked the beginning of a sea change for mental health patients. In 1955, the year the first effective antipsychotic drug was introduced, there were more than 500,000 patients in asylums. By 1994, that number decreased to just over 70,000. I'll cover why. By the way, antipsychotic drugs, that's a terrible name. Nobody wants to go in. My, myself, recently I went in and my, I was talking to my doctor about postpartum depression. And he's like, you know, and uh, I hate to say this, but, you know, there's this antipsychotic drug because postpartum depression, we think that it registers in the brain more like bipolar, but you don't get any of the mania, blah, 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 blah. And he's telling me all this and I'm like, antipsychotic? I'm depressed. I have anxiety. Antipsychotic, like there has to be a better word for for these drugs. If I haven't gone over the stats, but lots and lots and lots of people are using these these drugs and calling them antipsychotics, I think, is just doing a disservice to people and is certainly, um, you know, contributing to the continued stigmatization of um, mental illness and getting you know treatment for it. Anyway, that's the end of tackling the taboo within the taboo. Okay, so starting in the 1960s, institutions were gradually closed and the care of mental illness was transferred largely to independent community centers as treatments became both more sophisticated and humane. Make note, 1960s this happened. While these changes and modern care come with their own challenges, the treatment of mental health has come a long way in 250 years. No longer do the mentally ill need to fear living in inhumane asylums for life, being subjected to experimental shock treatments, or undergoing dangerous surgeries without consent. <laughs> mental health treatment may still come with a stigma, but there's a lot to hope for in the future. I'm just going to plug this now because I need to plug it a few times. It's a really good resource. The National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI.org. Um, it is a fantastic resource. I'll touch on it more later. Um, so now we're going to go into the party of Reagan and all of that shit. As... President and governor of California, the GOP icon led the one of the worst policies on mental illness in a generation. I have an excerpt here from Dr. E. Fuller Torrey. It's from American Psychosis. It's a little bit lengthy and I will attach it in the show notes, but I'm going to do a, a pretty thorough overview of the article because it's uh, kind of startling. In November 1980, Republican Ronald Reagan overwhelmingly defeated Jimmy Carter, who received less than 42% of the popular vote for president. Republicans took control of the Senate 53 to 46, the first time they had dominated either chamber since 1954. Goodness, I must be getting a cold. I thought I was going to sneeze. Soldier on. Although uh, the House remained under Democratic control 243 to 192, their margin was actually much slimmer because many Southern bow weevil Democrats voted with the Republicans. Um, I'm pretty sure that's a like parasitic insect that goes after plants. Sick burn. One month prior to the election, President Carter had signed the Mental Health Systems Act, which had proposed to continue the Federal Community Mental Health Centers program, although with some additional state involvement. 
Consistent with the report on the Carter Commission, the Act also included a provision for federal grants for projects for the prevention of mental illness and the promotion of positive mental health, an indication of how little learning had taken place among the Carter Commission members and professionals at NIMH. With President Reagan and the Republicans taking over, the Mental Health Systems Act was discarded before the ink was dried and the CMHC funds were simply block-granted to the states. The CMHC program had not only died, but been buried as well. An autopsy could have listed the cause of death as naivete, complicated by grandiosity. President Reagan never understood mental illness. Like Richard Nixon, he was a product of the Southern California culture that associated psychiatry with communism. Two months after taking office, Reagan was shot by John Hinckley, a young man with untreated schizophrenia. Two years later, Reagan called Dr. Roger Peel, then director of St. Elizabeth's Hospital, where Hinckley was being treated, and tried to arrange to meet with Hinckley so that Reagan could forgive him. Peel tactfully told the president that this was not a good idea. Reagan was also exposed to the consequences of untreated mental illness through the two sons of Roy Miller, his personal tax advisor. Both sons developed schizophrenia. One committed suicide in 1981, and another killed his mother in 1983. Despite such personal exposure, Reagan never exhibited any interest in the need for research or better treatment for serious mental illness. California has traditionally been on the cutting edge of American cultural developments, with Anaheim and Modesto experiencing changes before Atlanta and Moline. This was also true in the exodus of patients from state psychiatric hospitals. Beginning in the late 1950s, California became the national leader in aggressively moving patients from state hospitals to nursing homes and boarding care homes known in other states by names such as group homes, boarding homes, adult care homes, family care homes, assisted living facilities, community residential facilities, adult foster homes, transitional living facilities, and residential care facilities. Hospital wards closed as the patients left. By the time Ronald Reagan assumed the governorship in 1967, California had already deinstitutionalized more than half of its state's hospital patients. That same year, California passed the landmark Lanterman um, Petrus Short LPS Act, which virtually abolished involuntary hospitalization except in extreme cases. Thus, by the early 1970s, California had moved most mentally ill patients out of its state hospitals and by passing LPS had made it very difficult to get them back into a hospital if they relapsed and needed additional care. California thus became a canary in the coal mine of deinstitutionalization. Taking a break from the quote here. I understand we all need to have our personal freedom and, you know, that liberty can't be infringed upon lightly, but there also needs to be, you know, a middle ground. The pendulum consistently just swings back and forth as we overreact. And as I'll go on later to go over the stats, it's kind of staggering that we don't look at it and say, it's clearly a problem. We need to fix it. It's not the gun. It's not the, you know, whatever weapon. It's not the narcissism or the social media. It's the lack of access to taking care of one's mental health. Anyway, back to smarter folks. So the results were quickly apparent. As early as 1969, a study of California boarding care homes described them as follows. These facilities are in most respects like small, long-term state hospital wards isolated from the community. One is overcome by the depressing atmosphere. They maximize the state hospital-like atmosphere. The operator is being paid by the head rather than being rewarded for rehabilitation efforts for her guests. The study was done by Richard Lamb, a young psychiatrist working for San Mateo County in the intervening years. He has continued to be a leading American psyche, uh, psychiatrist pointing out the failures of 
deinstitutionalization. That is a tricky word to say. By 1975, boarding care homes had become big business in California. In Los Angeles alone, there were approximately 11,000 ex-state hospital patients living in boarding care facilities. Many of these homes were owned by for-profit chains such as Beverly Enterprises, which owned 38 homes. Many homes were regarded by their owners solely as a business squeezing excessive profits out of it at the expense of residents. Five members of Beverly Enterprises Board of Directors had ties to Governor Reagan. The chairman was vice chairman of a Reagan fundraising dinner, and four others were either politically active in one or both of the Reagan gubernatorial campaigns and or contributed large or undisclosed sums of money to the campaign. Financial ties between the governor, who was emptying state hospitals, and business persons who were profiting from the process would also soon become apparent in other states. Hmm. Correlation. For-profit prisons. Locking people up for drug offenses. Connection. Somewhere to be made. Many of the boarding care homes in California, as elsewhere, were clustered in city areas that were run down and thus had low rents. In San Jose, for example, approximately 1,800 patients discharged from nearby Agnew State Hospital were placed in homes clustered near the campus of San Jose State University. As early as 1971, the local newspaper decried this mass invasion of mental patients. Some patients left their board and care homes because of the poor living conditions, whereas others were evicted when the symptoms of their illness recurred because they were not receiving medication. But both scenarios resulted in homelessness. By 1973, the San Jose area was described as having discharged patients living in Skid Row wandering aimlessly in the streets, a ghetto for the mentally ill and mentally retarded. Not my words, I'm quoting. Similar communities were becoming visible in other California cities as well as in New York. In Long Beach, on Long Island, old motels and hotels were filled with patients discharged from the nearby Creedmoor and Pilgrim State Hospitals. In 1973, community residents were complaining that their town was becoming a psychiatric ghetto. At the local Catholic church, patients were said to have urinated on the floor during Mass and eaten the altar flowers. The Long Beach City Council therefore passed an ordinance requiring patients to take their prescribed medication as a condition for living there. Predictably, the New York, City, the New York Civil Liberties Union immediately challenged the ordinance as being unconstitutional and it was so ruled. By this time, there were about 5,000 board and care homes in New York City, some with as many as 285 beds and with up to 85% of their residents having been discharged from the state hospitals. As one New York psychiatrist summarized the situation, the chronic mentally ill patient has had his uh, locus of living and care transferred from a single lousy institution to multiple wretched ones. California was the first state to witness not only an increase in homelessness associated with deinstitutionalization, but also an increase in incarceration and episodes of violence. In 1972, Mark Abramson, another young psychiatrist working for San Mateo County, published a landmark paper, paper entitled The Criminalization of Mentally Disordered Behavior. Abramson claimed that because the new LPS statute made it difficult to get patients admitted to a psychiatric hospital, police regard arrest and booking into jail as a more reliable way of securing involuntary detention of mental, mentally disordered persons. Abram, Abramson quoted a California prison psychiatrist who claimed to be literally drowning in patients. Many more men are being sent to prison who have serious mental health problems. Abramson's paper was the first clear description of the increase of mentally ill persons in jails and prisons, an increase that would grow markedly in subsequent years. And I wonder why, because those pri prisons are also churning out a profit. Amazing. Well, the money, that's what I always say. By the mid-1970s, studies in some states suggested that about 5% of jail inmates were seriously mentally ill. In 
A study of five California county jails reported that 6.7% of inmates were psychotic. A study of the Denver County Jail reported that 5% of prisoners had a functional psychosis. Such figures contrasted with studies from the 1930s that had reported less than 2% of jail inmates as being seriously mentally ill. In 1973, the jail in Santa Clara County, which included San Jose, created a special ward to house just the individuals who have such a mental condition. This was apparently the first county jail to create a special mental illness unit. Given the increasing number of seriously mentally ill individuals living in the community in California by the mid-1970s, it is not surprising to find that they were impacting the tasks of police officers. A study of 301 patients discharged from Napa State Hospital between 1972 and 1975 found that 41% of them had been arrested. According to the study, patients who entered the hospital without a criminal record were subsequently arrested about three times as often as the average citizen. Significantly, the majority of these patients had received no aftercare following their hospital discharge. By this time, police in other states were also beginning to feel the burden of the discharged but often untreated mentally ill individuals. In suburban Philadelphia, for example, mental illness-related incidents increased 227.6% from 1975 to 1979, whereas felonies increased only 5.6%. Of all of the omens of deinstitutionalization's failure on exhibit in 1975, uh, n- excuse me, 1970s California, the most frightening were homicides and other episodes of violence committed by mentally ill individuals who were not being treated. A few include. In 1970, John Fraser, responding to the voice of God, killed a prominent surgeon and his wife, two sons, and secretary. Frazier's mother and wife had sought unsuccessfully to have him hospitalized. 1972, Herbert Mullen, responding to auditory hallucinations, I cannot talk, Herbert Mullen in 1972, responding to auditory hallucinations, I can't say it, hallucinations, I wanted to throw a Z in there for some reason. So, Herbert Mullen, that fucker, auditory hallucinations. I'm not going to try it again. He killed 13 people, that fucker, over three months. He had been hospitalized uh, hospitalized three times, um, but he was released without further treatment. Clearly that worked well for him and the 13 sets of families, loved ones, spheres he destroyed. In 1973, Charles uh, Soper Sopper killed his wife, three children, and himself two weeks after having been discharged from a state hospital. 1973, Ed Kemper, you have to know about Ed Kemper if I'm in your earbuds. Edmund Kemper killed his mother and her friend and was charged with killing six others eight years earlier. He had killed his grandparents, uh, so I said I read that terribly. Ed Kemper killed his mom and her friend, and right before that, like the preceding months, he had killed six other people. But before that, like years before that, I think eight years earlier, he had killed his grandparents because he was tired of their company, as he was quoted. I'm pretty sure he's in Mindhunter. I have not watched that. If you've watched it, you're screaming like, you're so stupid. So anyway, Um, But at the age of 21 years, he was released from the state hospital without further treatment. He essentially, like, studied the uh, doctors, figured out, like, what phrases and everything he needed to say so that he could just GTFO. And then he did, and then he killed several other people. So... Spoiler alert, 1977, Edward Alloway, believing that people were trying to hurt him, he killed seven people at Cal State Fullerton. Five years earlier, he had been hospitalized for paranoid schizophrenia, but released without further treatment. Such homicides were widely publicized. Many people perceived the tragedies as being linked to California's efforts to shut its state hospitals and to the new LPS law, which made involuntary treatment virtually impossible. 
The foreman of the jury that convicted convicted Herbert Mullen of the murders for which he was charged reflected the sentiments of many when he publicly stated, I hold the state executive and state legislative offices as responsible for these 10 lives as I do the defendant himself. None of this need ever have happened. In recent years, mental hospitals all over the state have been closed down in an economy moved by the Reagan administration. Where do you think these patients went after their release? The closing of our mental hospitals is, in my opinion, insanity itself. In response to queries about the homicides, the California Department of Mental Health had its deputy director, Dr. Andrew Robertson, testify before a state legislative inquiry in 1973. His testimony must rank among the all-time least successful attempts by a public official to reassure the public. And then Trump was like, hold my beer. It, LPS, was exposed, uh, has exposed us as a society to some dangerous people. No need to argue about that. People whom we have released have gone out and killed other people, maimed other people destroyed property. They have done many things of an evil nature without their ability to stop, and many of them have immediately therefore killed themselves. That sounds bad, but let's qualify it. The odds are still in society's favor, even if it doesn't make patients innocent or the guy who is hurt or killed feel any better. Yeah, fucking brilliant. 1980s, the problems became national. Woo! Until the 1980s, most people in the United States were unaware that the deinstitutionalization of patients from state mental hospitals was going terribly wrong. God, before the internet, we could just be so fucking dumb. Some were aware that homicides and other untoward things were happening in California, but such things were expected because it was, after all, California. <laughs> President Carter's Commission on Mental Health issued its report in 1978 and recommended doing more of the same things, more CMHCs, more prevention of mental illness, and more federal spending. The report gave no indication of a pending crisis. The majority of patients who had been discharged from state hospitals in the 1960s and 70s had gone on their uh, had gone to their own homes nursing homes, or board and care homes. They were, therefore, out of sight and out of mind, or they were dead. In the 1980s, this all changed. Deinstitutionalization became, for the first time, a topic of national concern. The beginning of the discussion was heralded by a 1981 editorial in the New York Times um, that labeled it a cruel embarrassment, a reform gone terribly wrong. And then three years later, the paper added the policy that led to the release of most of the nation's mentally ill patients from the hospital to the community is now widely regarded as a major failure. During the following decade, there were increasing concerns publicly expressed about mentally ill individuals in nursing homes, boarding care homes, and jails and prisons. It's like if we release all this like carbon and terrible shit into the atmosphere, like something bad might happen. Anyway, back to this depressing topic. So, shit ton of people in the board and care homes, jails, and prisons. There were also periodic headlines announcing additional high-profile homicides committed by individuals who were clearly psychotic. But the one issue that took center stage in the 1980s and directed public attention to deinstitutionalization was the problem of mentally ill homeless persons. During the 1980s, an additional 40,000 beds in state mental hospitals were shut down. The patients were being sent to community facilities. They were no longer um, those that were moderately well-functioning or elderly. Rather, they included the more difficult chronic patients from the hospitals um, backwards. These patients were often younger than the patients previously discharged, less likely to respond to medication, and less likely to be aware of their need for medication. So more unruly, harder to handle. In 1988, the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, issued estimates of where patients with chronic mental illness were living. Approximately 120,000 were said to still be hospitalized. 381,000 were in nursing homes. 
between 175 and 300,000 were living in board and care homes, and between 125 and 300,000 were thought to be homeless. These broad estimates for those living in board and care homes and on the street suggested that neither NIMH or anyone else really knew how many there actually were. Abuse of mentally ill persons in nursing homes had originally come to public attention during the 1974 hearings of the Senate Committee on Aging. Those hearings had described nursing homes actually bidding on patients in attempts to get those who were most easily managed. Bounties of $100 paid by nursing homes to hospital psychiatrists for every patient sent to them. Fuck, a referral fee for veggie bodies. Yikes. Okay, so uh, that's appalling. So $100 paid by nursing homes to doctors, psychiatrists, um, hospital psychiatrists for every patient sent to them, and exorbitant profits uh, for the nursing homes, of course. As a consequence of such hearings uh, and a 1986 uh, study of nursing homes by the Institute of Medicine, Congress passed legislation in 1987 requiring all Medicaid-funded nursing homes to screen new admissions to keep out patients who did not qualify for admission because they did not require uh, skilled nursing care. Follow-up studies indicated that the screening mandate had little effect on admission policies or abuses, like a restraining order. Abuse of mentally ill persons in board and care homes also periodically surfaced at this time. In 1982, nine ragged emaciated adults were found in an unlicensed home for mentally ill individuals in Jackson, Mississippi. They were living in a 10 by 10 foot building with no toilet or running water, only a plastic bucket to collect body wastes. A hose and faucet outside the building were used for washing. There were two mattresses on the concrete floor in a single cot in the room. There were also two vicious dogs chained outside the room. In 1984, seven former patients died in a fire in a rooming house in Worcester, Massachusetts. The report released this week, um, so I don't know when this was written, this quote. Uh, the report released this week said officials of Worcester State Hospital who referred the former patients to the rooming house had been warned by community health workers that the privately owned house was not safe guessing that there was no penalty. Sociologist Andrew Skull in 1981 summarized the economics of the board and care industry. The logic of the marketplace suffices to ensure that the operators have every incentive to warehouse their charges as cheaply as possible since the volume of profit is inversely proportional to the amount expended on the inmates, just like for-profit prisons. In addition, because many board and care homes were in uh, crime-ridden neighborhoods, mentally ill individuals living in them were often victimized when they went outside. A 1984 study of 278 patients living in board and care homes in Los Angeles reported that one-third um, had reported being robbed and or assaulted during the preceding year. The problems of mentally ill individuals in nursing homes and board and care homes rarely elicited media attention in the 1980s. By contrast, the problem of homeless persons, including the mentally ill homeless, became a major story. In Washington, Mitch Snyder and the National Coalition for the Homeless burst onto the national scene by staging hunger strikes and sleep-ins on sidewalk grates. Their message was that homeless persons are just like you and me and all they need is a house and a job. Snyder challenged President Reagan, accusing him of being the main cause of homelessness, and the media extensively covered the controversy. By the time Snyder committed suicide in 1990, homelessness had become a major topic of national discussion. Despite the claims of homeless uh, advocates, media attention directed to homeless persons made it increasingly clear that many of them were, in fact, seriously mentally ill. In 1981, Life magazine ran a story titled Emptying the Madhouse, the Mentally Ill Have Become Our City's Lost Souls. In 1982, Rebecca Smith froze to death in a cardboard box on the streets of New York. The media focused on her death because it was said that she had been valedictorian of her college class before becoming mentally ill. In 
1983, the media covered the story of Lionel Aldridge, the former all-pro linebacker for the Green Bay Packers. After developing schizophrenia, he had become homeless for several years on the street of, uh, streets of Milwaukee. In 1984, a study from Boston reported that 38% of homeless persons in Boston were seriously mentally ill. The report was titled, Is Homelessness a Mental Health Problem? And confirmed what people were increasingly beginning to suspect, that many homeless persons had previously been patients in the state mental hospitals. By the mid-1980s, a consensus had emerged that the total number of homeless persons was increasing. The possible reasons for this increase became a political football, but the failure of the mental health system was one option widely discussed. A 1985 report from the Los Angeles or from Los Angeles estimated that 30 to 50 percent of homeless persons were seriously mentally ill and were being seen in ever increasing numbers. The study concluded that this was in part the um, product of the deinstitutionalization movement. The streets have become the asylums of the 80s. The appearance of Joyce Brown on the streets of New York in 1986 added a new dimension to the national dialogue. Prior to taking up residence on a stream grate, uh, steam grate at the corner of East 65th Street and 2nd Avenue, Brown had worked for 10 years as a secretary. She had then become mentally ill, was hospitalized, and discharged. While living on the street, Brown was observed urinating on the sidewalk, defecated in the gutter, tearing up money given to her by passers-by and running into traffic. New York Mayor, Mayor Ed Koch ordered her to be involuntarily hospita hospitalized, well aware that the Civil Liberties Union's lawyers would contest the case. Koch's statement reflected the sentiments of many. If the crazies want to sue me, they have every right to sue. And by crazies, I'm talking about those who say no. You have no right to intervene to help. The civil liberty lawyers prevailed and the civil right to be both psychotic and homeless thus added another legal wrinkle to the ongoing homeless debate. By the end of the 1980s, the origins of the increasing number of mentally ill homeless persons had become abundantly clear. A study of 187 patients discharged from Metropolitan State Hospital in Massachusetts reported that 27% had become homeless. A study of 132 patients discharged from Columbus State Hospital in Ohio reported that 36% had become homeless. In 1989, when a San Francisco television station wished to advertise its series on homelessness, it put up uh, post posters around the city saying, you are now walking through America's newest mental institution. institution. Psychiatrist Richard Lamb added, probably nothing more graphically illustrates the problems of deinstitutionalization than the shameful and incredible phenomenon of the homeless mentally ill. Again, breaking. Is it shocking that people that are so sick that can't take care of themselves can't take care of themselves by getting a job and maintaining a home i'm not shocked by that so back to the nitty-gritty so at the same time that the mentally ill homeless um, persons were becoming ob an object of national concern during the 1980s, the number of mentally ill persons in jails and prisons was also increasing. A 1989 review of available studies concluded that the prevalence rates of major psychiatric disorders in jails and prisons have increased slowly and gradually in the last 20 years and will probably continue to increase. Various studies reported rates ranging from 6% in Virginia and 8% in New York to 10% in Oklahoma and California and 11% in Michigan and Pennsylvania. By 1990, a national survey concluded, Given all the data, it seems responsible to reasonable to conclude that approximately 10% of inmates in prisons and jails, or approximately 100,000 individuals, suffer from schizophrenia or manic depressive psychosis or bipolar disorder. 
This 10% estimate contrasted with the 5% prevalence rate that had been widely cited a decade earlier. Amid the various studies, disturbing trends were evident. Among 132 patients discharged from Columbus State Hospital in Ohio, 17% were arrested within six months. In California, seriously mentally ill individuals with a history of past violence, including armed robbery and murder, were being discharged from mental hospitals without any planned aftercare. In Colorado in 1984, George Wooten, diagnosed with schizophrenia, was booked into the Denver County Jail for the hundredth time. He would be the first prominent member of a group that would become widely known as Frequent Flyers. In several states, the bizarre behavior of mentally ill inmates was also becoming problematic for jail personnel. In Montana, a man tried to drown himself in the jail toilet, and in California, inmates tried to escape by smearing themselves with their own feces and flushing themselves down the toilet. To make matters worse, civil liberties lawyers frequently defended the rights of mentally ill prisoners to refuse medication and remain psychotic. At a 1985 commitment hearing in Wisconsin, for example, a public defender argued that his jailed mentally ill client, who had been observed eating his feces, was in no imminent danger of of physical injury or dying and should therefore be released, the judge agreed. As more and more mentally ill individuals entered the criminal justice system in the 1980s, local police and sheriff's departments were increasingly affected. In New York City, calls associated with emotionally disturbed persons, referred to as EDPs, increased from 20,843 in 1980 to 46,845 in 1988. Doing a little fast math, that's over uh, doubling in eight years. Experts say similar increases have occurred in other large cities. Many such calls required major developments of police resources. The rescue of a mentally ill man from the top of a tower on Staten Island, for example, required at least 20 police officers and supervisors, half a dozen emergency vehicles, several highway units, and a helicopter. In an attempt to deal with these psychiatric emergencies, the police department in Memphis, Tennessee in 1988 created the first specially trained police crisis intervention team, or CIT, as it would become known as it was replicated in other areas. Finally, in the 1980s, witnessed, um, finally, the 1980s witnessed increased episodes of violence, including homicides committed by mentally ill individuals who were not receiving treatment. The decade began ominously with three high-profile shootings between March 1980 and March 1981. Former Congressman Allard Lowenstein was killed by Dennis Sweeney, John Lennon was killed by Mark David Chapman, and President Ronald Reagan was shot by John Hinckley. All three perpetrators had untreated schizophrenia. Sweeney, for example, believed that Lowenstein, his former mentor, had implanted a transmitter in his teeth through which he was sending harassing voices. As the decade progressed, such widely publicized homicides became more common. An example, 1985, Sylvia Segrist, diagnosed with schizophrenia and with 12 past hospitalizations, killed three and wounded seven in a Pennsylvania shopping mall. Brian Stanley, diagnosed with schizophrenia and with seven past hospitalizations, killed a priest and two others in a Wisconsin Catholic church. Lois Lang, diagnosed with schizophrenia, and discharged from a mental hospital three months earlier, killed the chairman of a foreign exchange firm and his receptionist in New York. 1986. Juan Gonzalez, diagnosed with schizophrenia and uh, psychiatrically evaluated four days earlier, killed two and injured nine others with a sword on New uh, New York's Staten Island Ferry. A fucking sword. Oh, my God. 1987, David Hassan, discharged two days earlier from a mental hospital, killed four people by running them over with his car in California. 1988, Lori Dan, 
who was known to both the police and FBI because of her threatening and psychotic behavior, killed a boy and injured five of his classmates in an Illinois elementary school. Dorothy, um, I think I have an autocorrect, Dorothy Montalvo, I think it's Montalvo, um, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. She was accused of murdering at least seven elderly individuals and burying them in her backyard in California. Aaron Lynch, known to be mentally ill and threatening, killed the Dane County coroner in Madison, Wisconsin. This was one of six incidents in that county during 1988, which included um, involving mentally ill individuals that resulted in four homicides, three suicides, seven victims wounded by gunshots, and one victim mauled by a polar bear when a mentally ill man climbed into its pen at the local zoo. I feel like that's the worst 12 days of Christmas ever. Four homicides, three suicides, seven victims wounded by gunshots, and one victim mauled by a polar bear. It doesn't have the right ring. Fuck. So 1989, Joseph Westbecker, diagnosed with bipolar disorder, killed seven and wounded 13 at a printing plant in Kentucky. Another indication that such episodes of violence were increasing was a study that compared admissions to a New York State psychiatric hospital in 1975 and 1982. It reported that the percentage of patients who had committed violence towards persons while living in the community in the 1982 cohort was nearly double the percentage of the 1975 cohort. In addition, the percentage of patients who had encounters with the criminal justice system in 1982 cohort were more than quadruple the percentage in the 1975 cohort. Is there any way to estimate the frequency of these episodes of violence committed by the mentally ill person not being treated? There was then and continues to be no national database that tracks homicides committed by mentally ill persons. However, a small study published in 1988 provided a clue. In Contra Costa County, I will forever associate Paul Holes, Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo with Contra Costa County. I digress. In Contra Costa County, California, all 71 homicides committed between 1978 and 1980 were examined. Seven of the 71 homicides were found to have been done by individuals with schizophrenia. 10%, right? Quick math. All of whom had previously been hospitalized at some point before the crime. The 10% rate, oh yeah, 10%. The 10% rate was also consistent with the findings of another small study in Albany County, New York. Therefore, by the late 1980s, it appeared that violent acts committed by untreated mentally ill persons was one of the consequences of the deinstitutionalization movement, and the problem appeared to be a growing one. Oh, so yeah, that's um basically like the Reagan-centric rundown. Most of that info was pulled from American Psychosis, how the federal government destroyed the mental illness treatment system uh, by E. Fuller Torrey. It was a pretty comprehensive, intense read. Now I want to go over some current 2018 on the cusp of 2019 happy new year um stats regarding the prevalence of mental illness approximately one in five adults in the u.s so 43.8 million or 18.5 percent experience mental illness in a given year that's crazy one in five i'm i'm there approximately one in 25 adults in the u.s which is 9.8 million or 4%, experiences a serious mental illness in a given year that sub, uh, substantially interferes with or limits one or more major uh, life activities. Approximately one in five youth aged, so here they're distinguishing 13 to 18 year olds, so 21.4% experiences a severe mental disorder at some point during their life. For children aged 8 through 15, this estimate is 13.3%. 1.1% of adults in the U.S. live with schizophrenia. 
2.6% of adults in the U.S. live with bipolar disorder. 6.9% of adults in the U.S., or 16 million, had at least one major depressive episode in the past year. 18.1% of adults in the U.S. experienced an anxiety disorder such as post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and specific phobias. Among the 20.2 million adults in the U.S. who experienced a substance use disorder, um, 50.5 or 10.2 million adults had a co-occurring mental illness. So now some social stats. An estimated 26% of homeless adults staying in shelters live with serious mental illness and an estimated 46% live with severe mental illness and or substance use disorders. Approximately 20% of state prisoners and 21% of local jail prisons have a recent hist- prisoners have a recent history of mental health issues. 70% of youth in juvenile justice systems have at least one mental health condition and at least 20% live with a serious mental illness. That is so fucking sad. 70% of the youth in juvenile justice systems. God, if we could just give them treatment, rehabilitation, ugh, just them alone, how could you change these stats? So only 41% of adults in the U.S. with a mental health condition received mental health services in the past year. Among adults with a serious mental illness, 62.9% received mental health services in the past year. Just over half, 50.6% to be exact, of children with a mental health condition aged 8 to 15 received mental health services in the past year. African Americans and Hispanic Americans each use mental health services at about one-half the rate of Caucasian Americans and Asian Americans at about one-third the rate. Half of all chronic mental illnesses begin by age 14. I was diagnosed with anxiety at 16. Definitely remember having it as a fucking kid, like single digits. So half of all chronic mental illness begins by age uh, 14, three quarters by the age 24. Despite effective treatment, there are long delays, sometimes decades, between the first appearance of symptoms and when people actually get help. There are consequences for the lack of treatment. Serious mental illness costs America $193.2 billion in lost earnings per year. Mood disorders, including major depression, um, bipolar disorder, and um, schizophrenia are the third most common cause of hospitalization in the U.S. for both youth and adults aged 18 to 44. Individuals living with serious mental illness face an increased risk of having chronic medical conditions. Adults in the U.S. living with serious mental illness die on average 25 years earlier than others, largely due to treatable medical conditions. Over one-third, 37% of students with a mental health condition age 14 to 21 and older uh, who are served by special education dropout, the highest dropout rate of any disability group. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States and the second leading cause of death for people aged 10 to 34. More than 90% of people who die by suicide show symptoms of a mental health condition. Each day, an estimated 18 to 22 veterans die by suicide. Mental illness, if looked at like a virus, is a pandemic, but one wouldn't know it based on how our society, our political discussions break down, our lack of funding and services for those impacted by mental illness. We're all pull your broken ass up by your bootstraps. How do we deal with mental illness? Some people get proper care. Many others self-medicate. Many don't live their best lives. Some can't hold down jobs or places to live. Some may turn to crime for survival. Some may self-medicate and exasperate the mental illness. I'm yet to find a study or resource that articulates the financial devastation untreated mental illness causes the economy outside of um, 
actual wage loss for the affected. So I'm talking about all other aspects. If we're at nearly $200 billion in just lost wages, I can only imagine what the cost of treatment actually would amount to. With mental illness in all of its nuances, we are in the midst of a pandemic, and yet we're not talking about it. It's taboo. And is it because it makes us vulnerable? Because mental illness can be weaponized against the person afflicted? Because mental illness is a silent disease? Because there's still a common misconception that clean eating, Zumba, and sunshine is the cure to mental illness? I know there's a generational component, to be sure. And people closer to my age are more progressive in thinking, probably because we're all medicated. But there's a certain weakness some prescribe to having a mental illness. Man, I really can find a way to bring all roads back to toxic masculinity and the fucking oppressive patriarchy, but there is a pattern. This episode has been dense, heavy in historical context and stats, so I'll wrap it up. If you have a mental illness, I hope you're managing well. The National Alliance on Mental Illness... Uh, NAMI.org is a great resource to further your understanding, find support, or professional assistance. Being treated for mental illness is in no way a reflection on the strength of a person. It also doesn't have to be a source of shame or identity. We're all deserving of living a happy, healthy life, so don't let the stigma or taboo keep you from realizing your full potential. Thank you for listening to this episode of Taboo and Murder. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Oh, and also please subscribe to this sister podcast, Slanted Rants. If you subscribe or leave a review on either podcast, um, five-star review with the keyword coffee in it, you'll be entered to win a drawing for um, a $50 gift card to any coffee shop or restaurant of your choosing. Wishing you all a very happy and safe new year. Thank you for listening.